Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHTFM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHTFM, your classical companion. Our Night in Old Russia program began with one of my all-time favorite symphonies, Tchaikovsky's Fourth. This is one of Tchaikovsky's most deeply felt works. It's a work that grew out of a very difficult and painful period in his life. Uh, The work was written in 1878, and Tchaikovsky, who, as you perhaps know, was gay, had a, a great deal of trouble, as any gay man in 1870s Russia would have, coming to terms not only with his sexuality, but with a society that viewed his uh, sexual proclivities as as a high crime. And so uh, in the mid-1870s, Tchaikovsky decided to marry. It happened there was a young woman who had been a student at the conservatory, unfortunately a little bit imbalanced, a young imbalanced lady, who professed in a letter her undying love for Tchaikovsky. And Tchaikovsky, deciding that he would uh, finally deal with his propensities, uh, went to her and proposed marriage, explaining that he could never love her, but that he would be happy to marry her. They proceeded with the marriage, and within days, if not minutes, uh, Tchaikovsky suffered essentially an entire, complete nervous breakdown. Uh, He would wander the streets of Moscow, trying to avoid going home in the evening to see his young wife. Uh, He even tried to drown himself in the river, or at least give himself a chill. And finally, or not even finally, within a matter of weeks, they were separated, and Tchaikovsky never uh, lived with the young lady, Antonina Milukova, again. It was this period that Tchaikovsky, in a certain way, tried to convey in his Fourth Symphony. The work is, however, of course, an, an abstract piece, so it doesn't really uh, tell the story of this of this terrible emotional stress uh, that Tchaikovsky was feeling in this period. But at the same time that Tchaikovsky was undergoing this uh, rather terrifying and terrible ordeal with his marriage, Uh, There was something much more positive going on in his his life concurrently. This is that he, at the same time, came into contact with this uh, remarkable lady, Madame von Meck, Madame Nadezda von Meck, a very wealthy uh, Moscow socialite who was absolutely passionate about Tchaikovsky's music and offered to essentially support him single-handedly as long as he met her one and only condition, which was that they never meet. Uh, so what happened was uh, Tchaikovsky and Madame von Meck embarked on one of the most intimate friendships in all of music history, and yet a very strange one in that it was carried on entirely in letters. And so the reason we know so much about this symphony and Tchaikovsky's mindset at the time is because he wrote an extremely detailed program of the symphony to Madame von Meck, uh, detailing not only the breakup of his marriage and all the stress that he was under at the time, uh, although not making any references to his, his homosexuality, he, he really tells 
the story of the symphony to Madame von Meck, and the letter is a, an incredible document. The work begins with this very famous statement of what he calls the fate theme. And he describes it in his letter very eloquently. This is the sword of Damocles that hangs over our heads, threatening to destroy our happiness. And this fate idea will re- reappear at various critical points throughout well, all but one of the movements of the symphony. So it really permeates the texture of the symphony. And and in a way, even when we reach some of the happiest moments, this fate theme sort of crashes in to remind us that all is not actually well. The symphony is in four movements. The first movement is an extended kind of waltz fantasy, a waltz scherzo with this fate theme crashing in at various points. Very unsettled but beautiful music with a, a rather contrasting second theme, as symphonies of the period seem to have. But this one he describes, uh, it begins with the clarinet. It's as if the elusiveness of happiness is the region of the second theme. So the first movement is made up of these very contrasting ideas, this this nervous waltz, contrasting with the more peaceful happiness theme of the second idea. The second movement, one of the most beautiful movements in all of Tchaikovsky's, begins with a, a long-sung a song, essentially, sung first by the oboe and then passed along to the cello section. It's the idea of memory. And he even writes in the middle section, this kind of red-blooded middle section, that it's about remembering red-blooded youth and how healthy and optimistic we were way back. But the whole second movement seems to be principally about the nature of nostalgia and I guess of aging to a certain extent. The third movement is in one sense the most arresting movement in the entire symphony. It's that famous pizzicato movement in which all of the strings in the the scherzo part of the piece, you know, a scherzo is set up in three parts. Scherzo theme, the middle section, the trio as it's called, and then the scherzo comes back. So in the A and the C sections, the first and the third sections, the strings play entirely plucked. They only pluck their strings, and they actually set their bows down, and the entire third movement in the string parts is played only pizzicato, this this plucked idea, and it has this wonderful kind of otherworldly sensibility. Tchaikovsky describes this, it's as if you're I think he says something like if you're on a rainy day and you're you're looking out the window and you're thinking about nostalgic thoughts once again. And in the middle, um, the middle section is this wonderful kind of drunken trio. All the woodwinds sort of show up and they sing. And then in the distance, he says a, a marching band goes by, the brass. And then it combines with the kind of drunken song of the woodwinds, and then finally the scherzo, the string pizzicato section, returns. So it's a, a charming, very short, it's the shortest movement in the, in the entire piece, six minutes roughly, I think, but it's in a way the most arresting movement. And in the last movement, maybe the most famous movement of the whole piece, it's this big, fabulous... This very dramatic seemingly joyful music. Tchaikovsky writes, if you can't find happiness within yourself, go to the people, to the villages of Russia, and there you'll find joy. As anyone who's ever been depressed knows, that doesn't always work that well. So in a way, I think this, um, it's almost like Tchaikovsky wanting to find happiness, but somehow unable. And interestingly, he makes as his contrasting theme, his second idea, uh, this very famous old Russian folk song. Vopali Luli Luli Stayala. 
Luli Luli Stoyola, which every Russian child knows. It's about the birch tree standing alone in the middle of a field. The birch tree is a symbol of Mother Russia. And in a way, I'm not sure that the original folk song is really about loneliness, but the way Tchaikovsky uses it, it's as if he is this tree kind of standing alone amid all this joy and yet eternally kind of alone. And so the piece, although it ends with a great crashing triumphal note, it it always seems like a rather mixed triumphal ending. And I've always felt that there's a lot more sadness in it than than perhaps joy. But one of the great symphonies of the 19th century, uh, this is Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. You're listening to David Allen Miller, the conductor and music director of the Albany Symphony. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHTFM, your classical companion. For the second half of our program, I invited our good friends of Albany Pro Musica, the brilliant chorus based in Albany and here in the Capital Region, conducted for low these many years by the uh, inspired choral conductor and musician David Griggs Janauer. We tend to have at least an annual collaboration with Albany Pro Musica because it's such a joy for us to work with them and because the choral repertoire is so rich. Uh, So for this program, since we were heading in an all-Russian way, I think it was David who suggested to me that we um, do a couple of pieces on the second half of the program that feature chorus prominently. There is a version of Tchaikovsky's 1812 with chorus, which I'll describe in a few moments, and one of the most beautiful choral scenes in all of Russian music is the coronation scene from Mussorgsky's Boris Gudunov, but probably the most famous choral piece in Russian opera is from Alexander Borodin's opera Prince Igor, and it's known as uh, the Polovetsian Dances. Now, these Polovetsian Dances uh, were made quite famous by the musical Kismet, in which all the music for the musical was based on themes from these Polovetsian Dances. Borodin's a very interesting figure in Russian history uh, because he really made his living as a medical doctor and a chemist. He was a professor of chemistry and a very successful scientist, very important scientist in 19th century Russia, who also happened to be one of the most important composers in the nationalist movement of the mid-19th century. He was one of the five members of that group called the Mighty Handful or the Five or the Mighty Kuchka, uh, of which Mussorgsky was one, Rimsky-Korsakov another, Mili Balakirev was kind of the leader of the group, and a fellow called Cesar Qui was the fifth. And this group was a group of uh, St. Petersburg composers who really set out in the mid-19th century to forge a Russian nationalist school of music, which to their mind really didn't fully exist. You know, Russia was somewhat influenced by Western Europe, but was considered something of a backwater, and they felt that they needed to somehow create a kind of music that was based on Russian folk themes. Russian folk dances, Russian folk music, and yet that still also could exist in relation to the Western mainstream. And in essence, that's what they did. So Borodin spent the last 21 or so years of his life writing his magnum opus, his opera, Prince Igor, about a legendary 12th century Russian prince, Prince Igor. Uh, And in the opera, he's captured, and uh, instead of being tortured or put to death in those very sane times, as you know the 12th century was, uh, he's entertained by the great Khan Konchak, whose prisoner he is, by beautiful, wonderful slave girl dancers and slave girl and boy singers. And uh, so in this scene, the slaves of Khan Kochak, or Khan Kochak, as I guess it's said, sing and dance for Prince Igor's enjoyment. So here now, sung in Russian by Albany Pro Musica, David Griggs Jana, our conductor, uh, the Albany Symphony is joined by Albany Pro Musica in Alexander Borodin's Polovetsian Dances. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, 
your classical companion. And next on our program was a, a piece that I find to be one of the most exciting works in all of Russian music. This is Modas Muzorgsky's magnum opus. It is his opera, Boris Gudunov, and this is the most famous scene, I think, from that opera. It's the coronation scene. Once again, uh, the subject matter of this opera by Mussorgsky is a 12th century czar, in essence, Boris, who is actually a usurper of the throne. Prior to the beginning of the opera, as legend has it, Boris has essentially engineered the murder, the brutal murder of the young heir to the throne, to the, to the next czar. And Boris has also engineered his own ascent uh, in the place of the young Tsarevich as the next czar. And in this scene, fairly early in the opera, the wonderful, honest, trusting Russian people are in the great square singing joyfully about the coronation of the new czar, Tsar Boris. And uh, the work, like so many of these works, the scene tends to be is in three parts. First, the, the people proclaim their new czar, and then Boris comes on the stage. Our Boris is played by a brilliant uh, local bass baritone, Mr. Keith Kibler from Williamstown, Massachusetts, a gentleman who's sung a great deal around the capital region and has sung a number of times with the symphonies, one of my favorite vocal artists. His song, his aria, is really in three parts. First, he sings kind of internally to himself about how his heart is filled with dread because he knows what terrible things he's done and that he really isn't worthy of this. And then in the middle, there's kind of a moment of pause where he turns sort of to the public and he finally must address them. And first he begs God for a blessing upon his tenure, fat chance of that since he's already starting with blood on his hands. And then the third part, he basically sings about uh, the wonder of the Russian people and their goodness and that he hopes that they will all embrace his reign. And then the the great chorus comes back and they sing once again triumphantly. You'll notice from the very beginning that there are bells everywhere. The idea is to replicate all the bells chiming throughout the city, and I hope we do a good job of that. I should also mention that Muzorgsky was, I think, the most individual and, and, dare I say, original of all the Russian nationalists. And yet he had a terrible difficult struggle throughout his not very long life. He lived to be 42 with alcoholism and eventually drank himself essentially to death. And by the end of his life was really, you know, living on the street and living off of handouts from his friends and had completely destroyed his health and his sanity and all those things uh, and died a broken man and yet was able to essentially complete this unbelievable work along with a number of not a very large number, but a small number of other very significant and powerful works. Um, so an amazing figure, unfortunately destroyed by alcoholism. But after his death, Rimsky-Korsakov, the youngest member of the group of the mighty Kuchka or of the five, felt it was his job to sort of fix up Mussorgsky's works. He, he also did the same thing for Borodin. The Borodin performing edition you heard for our Politzian dances was also prepared by Rimsky. But in the case of Mussorgsky, Rimsky-Korsakov really did massive reconstruction to all of the Mussorgsky works that uh, Rimsky-Korsakov got his hands on, none more so than Boris. And I must say that the, perf- the standard performing version of Boris Gudunov and of the scene has always been, until about 20 years ago, the Rimsky rewrite of the piece, which frankly takes all the kind of edge out of the piece and all the primitivist elements of it and turns it into something much more Western European and kind of symphonic. And fortunately, we were able to uh, get our hands on the original version of the coronation scene before Rimsky had his way with it. And it's that original version that we're performing for you. And I must say that, that this version, I think, is so far superior to the Rimsky rewrite 
that I hope uh, it's the way everybody gets to hear this piece from now on. It's brighter and more brilliant and more brash, all the big B words, and I hope you enjoy it. Here now, the coronation scene from Mussorgsky's Boris Gudunov. The chorus is Albany Pro Musica. Boris is sung by Keith Kibler, and the Albany Symphony is conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The Conductor's Notes podcast features David Allen Miller from the Albany Symphony. The producer is Rob Brown, technical editor Chris Wink. The Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHTFM, your classical companion. For the final work on our program, since, as you can hear, those last two numbers are pretty hard to top, we thought we'd better pull out all the stops and give our audience and you the ultimate Russian work of all times, this Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, arguably the most famous piece of Russian music, however, in a version that is almost never heard. And I'll tell you why. The reason is because when Tchaikovsky wrote this piece for the dedication or perhaps also the consecration of a great cathedral uh, honoring the events of 1812 and the Russian triumph ultimately over Napoleon's troops, he did not use a chorus. However, he took one of the most famous of all church hymns, God Preserve Thy People or Lord Save Thy People, and he used it as the material both for the opening, this beautiful eight cello, eight solo cello opening that begins the work, and he also used it as the climactic moment at the very end when the bells go crazy and the triumphant music returns. And he quoted this famous church hymn absolutely verbatim at the beginning at the end and the end. And also, in addition, he used a number of other found sources, particularly the uh, Tsarist national anthem as well as the Marseillaise, which find their way into the battle music as the French and the Russian battle with each other. And yet, in the 1960s, a Russian conductor had the idea of replacing the opening and the closing, or actually particularly the opening, the cello solos, with the chorus, with a chorus, singing the original version of this beautiful church hymn. And so it is this version that we'll be performing for you now. Uh, It's a version that's almost never heard, and yet it's extremely beautiful. Having done this piece a great number of times, particularly outside on the 4th of July and various other summer concerts, I've always worked on knowing and learning and being able to sing this church hymn, and I've always been eager to hear it with a big, beautiful choir. And I must say that it's extremely effective as the beginning and ending of this piece. I also have the strange sensation, whenever I do the piece indoors, which is not that frequently, of actually smelling the fireworks when we hit the second theme. I always That's when they usually light the fireworks, and I can always smell sort of the beginning of the fire starting. <laughs> so I have sort of a, like Pavlova's dancing dog, I have a a sense of, uh, you know, I have sort of the fireworks built into my interpretation of the 1812. So anyway, this is the 1812, but in this fascinating new version uh, in which the piece is played complete. However, at the beginning and the end, the chorus joins in for this beautiful hymn, O God, Preserve Thy People. So now, here to close our Night in Old Russia concert, the choristers of Albany Pro Musica, David Griggs Janauer, artistic director, join the Albany Symphony, led by me, David Allen Miller, in Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture choral version. The Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHTFM, your classical companion.